Welcome to Autonomous Unity. I'm your host, Chubbs the Attic, and this is episode two, all about recovery. Hi family, my name is Chubbs and I am an addict. This podcast is intended for members of Narcotics Anonymous, or those who think that they might have a drug problem and might be interested in Narcotics Anonymous. We're going to take a step back today. The name of episode two is all about recovery. And I I just feel like it's important to share my recovery with those of you who may be listening, regardless of uh, how you feel about the issues that we discuss with regard to services for NA and our service structure. A lot of a lot of times I'll get emails and, and messages that say things like, uh, why don't you guys just form another fellowship already? And quite simply, Narcotics Anonymous is my fellowship. It's the fellowship that I belong to, and we're not separatists. We don't want to force other groups to believe the way we believe. Uh, I know that a lot of you are told uh, through various channels that we're out here to create controversy and, and divide the fellowship and, and create discord and disunity and nothing can be further from the truth. We simply want to practice the traditions, practice our autonomy is guaranteed within those traditions and do things the way that uh, our conscience calls us to do them. And believe me, I would much rather go with the flow. I can't tell you how much easier it would be for me to just follow the concepts in the non-structure. It's because of my conscience that I can't, because deep inside me, no matter how hard I've tried to accept that structure, no matter how hard I have tried to accept those concepts, deep down within me, I know it's not right, and I know that our traditions are non-negotiable, and I'm not here to preach about that today, but I did want to let you know where we come from. It's not about separatism. We would love for every group in Narcotics Anonymous to view the traditions the way that we do, but I don't personally believe that there's an NA police, or that there should be. Uh, I don't personally believe that the traditions provide for any enforcement of them other than loving education and sharing with each other uh, and loving discussion. Um, I don't personally believe that using our original basic text infringes on the rights of other groups or the autonomy of other groups. Uh, matter of fact, yeah, I don't think any of us believe that every, well, maybe some people do, but I don't personally believe that every group should use the exact same format. There are cultural differences, geographical differences. If you've traveled far around the United States or, or even outside the United States, if uh, you happen to be listening outside the United States, uh, you've probably seen a number of different formats and different meetings, uh, all well within the traditions. I don't think we would think for a minute that uh, we would say every NA group has to use the same format, has to do birthdays in the same order, has to even celebrate birthdays. We have birthday meetings, uh, you know, we have literature dis- uh, discussion meetings, uh, literature studies, we have open discussion meetings, we have open discussion meetings that are closed meetings, we have open meetings, we have so many different types and formats of meetings. I have been in meetings that not even the same readings were read. I remember a time when uh, a lot of groups did not read the portion of We Do Recover that uh, many groups, uh, at least in the rest in the West, read nowadays. Um, you know, to say that we all have to use the exact same literature or a version of our basic text that has been updated by professional writers and closed committee uh, it doesn't make any more sense to me than saying that we all have to use the exact same format or opt to read the same things at the beginning of our meetings. It, it's the same type of autonomy, and we don't feel like 
us choosing to use our original basic text. And if you listen to episode one, the body of the baby blue is quite literally our original basic text. As you know, uh, it's not some amalgamation. It's it's the original. Uh, if you're dealing with the approval draft or the second edition baby blue, it, it is our basic text all the way down to the headers. Uh, and again, in the headers that are in the most common baby blue are the same ones that those of you who use a sixth edition have in your sixth edition. So it's your sixth edition headers on our original basic text. And that's all it really is. Uh, the reason I want to share more on a personal note today is because, again, that's by far the most important thing to me as a traditionalist is carrying the message. That's that's what we do as traditionalist groups. We happen to believe that the best way to do that is to follow our traditions literally uh, exactly as they sound, that a group means a Narcotics Anonymous group. It's not about disunity. It's not about discord. And I would encourage anybody out there who has doubts to go out and study the history. Uh, it's very sad that our fellowship ended up in court uh, with our service structure at some point. But uh, don't believe me. Don't believe somebody from the corporate office. Don't believe anybody on any side of it. Just go read the court transcripts. They're online. They're available. They're very easy to find. Um, read them word for word. I read all 160 pages. I didn't come to the place I am because I wanted to be on one side or the other. I wanted to know the truth. And uh, that's all we're about as traditionalists. We don't want to force ourselves on the rest of the fellowship. Of course, we would love if everybody started thinking the way that we thought and that if either Nas changed and that would include changing its name so that you know there was a reason in our minds that it was the corporation was originally called World Service Office Incorporated and it's because we don't lend our name to the corporation or a corporation that's supposed to serve us uh, that's an outside entity uh, that is a service for NA or, or supposed to be uh, that would involve that uh, you know I would love to see the fellowship stop using Nas or Nas come in line with our traditions uh, but I'm not out here to tell you to do that you know my home group respects your home group's autonomy as much as we value our own we're simply asking people to let us coexist with you let us support you in carrying the message yeah we don't participate in the same service structure that you do if you're on the East Coast you don't participate in the same area that a group in the West Coast does, yet you're both still carrying the message. And there are a lot of groups out there that aren't tied into the NAS structure, may, may not be participate in area. There's a lot of groups out there that are participate in, in areas that uh, don't support uh, the world office uh, because of a number of issues. And and that's uh, that's what we what we're about we're about autonomy uh, allow us to be about attraction rather than promotion um, we're not worried about groups out there doing things a different way than we do them i would like to see it different but i really feel like if we're all allowed to exist and we all follow the traditions the best that we can and we all make an effort to apply the traditions uh, the best that we can and you may interpret them different i don't feel like i interpret the traditions at all uh, but you may have a different understanding, let's put it that way. But, uh, you know, the message will be carried if we follow those traditions and we make an effort and we allow each other to coexist and we include and participate with one another. My home group supports the home groups in this area that don't use the same service structures that we use, and so far they support us. Uh, so that being said, I, I just want to spend 
one episode talking about my personal recovery, letting you get to know me better, uh, and not from a, a standpoint of the way I feel about the traditions or the way I feel about service structures. I had an overdose when I was very, very young. It was, I believe, eight days before my 16th birthday. Um, and it went beyond an overdose. I, I went into a psychosis that lasted for quite a while. Uh, it was very scary. And I had the doctors tell me that if I used any drug, uh, including alcohol, that I could go back into a psychotic state of mind uh, where I couldn't distinguish fantasy from reality, for lack of a better way of putting it. And it'd be very hard to describe the state of mind I was in. And so for approximately three years, uh, I did not use any drugs, including alcohol. And at the end of that three years, um, well, I'll go back a little bit. At first, I did know from seeing other people. I didn't know much about another program that, that existed before ours. I, I had never heard of our program, but I had seen people... I'd come to come to our school and put on an assembly, and I don't think they were from any fellowship, and it were young like myself that had talked about the way they stayed clean was to share their message and to st share their story, and I knew to do that at first, and so I would do that as best I could, and I was probably sharing more of a mess than anything, uh, but I did that at first, and after a while I didn't do that, and I didn't have an association with, with any fellowship. And needless to say, slowly but surely, I decided at some point to use again. And it was a very insidious, slow progression just after my 19th birthday, making a decision to take that first uh, drug. And I'm going to get, I'm just going to reference the substance. I started drinking, and it, it's the only reason it's important is, I guess, to illustrate a little bit of the progression because at that time in my mind, not having access to Narcotics Anonymous, knowing that it existed, not being involved in any other fellowship or any program whatsoever. In my mind, I went, well, you know, I'm not sober anymore, but I'm still clean. <laughs> and I know that sounds funny now, but that's what I actually thought looking back. And as that progressed over the years, and eventually I started abusing over-the-counter drugs besides alcohol, and I started abusing... Uh, at some point, again, other people's prescriptions, I would always justify it. And, and the final justification was, of course, uh, you know, I'd done everything but street drugs. And I haven't done street drugs. I've done things that are illegal because they were other people's prescriptions, but I haven't done street drugs. And the prescriptions are okay because I'm not going to overdose because I know the exact dosage. I know what's in them. I'm not going to get a hold of something that's laced. Uh, you know, that was my justification in my mind to still call myself clean. And I remember going to work at a, at a place and, and meeting another guy who was a member of Narcotics Anonymous. And I, again, I didn't know that N.A. was what he participated in. I don't think I knew it existed. He probably mentioned the name. I never picked up on it. But I remember him talking about his clean time and his recovery one day to me. We were out on the basketball court at, at work and. uh he told me he had however many years it was. Uh, it was early on at that point. This was long before I got clean. It was probably two years, maybe even 18 months he had. I think it was two years that he had at the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got X amount of years clean, which was, was more than him. Uh, and he did not tell me I wasn't clean. He smiled. He gave a little smirk. He may have congratulated me, 
but he always carried this message of attraction rather than promotion. He didn't beat me over the head with Narcotics Anonymous. He didn't preach it uh, to the point that uh, when my life fell apart and I was going through a divorce and I was absolutely miserable and I made the decision to go back uh, to take that last step and, and do something a little more potent and I got with another individual that I worked with on a graveyard shift, and we went out to his car, and we did we did this drug. And as the effects hit me, I remember thinking what an idiot I was that I had wasted at this point eight and a half years not using street drugs, especially this particular drug, because of how good it made me feel. And I remember in that instant going over in my mind my finances so that I could have this drug all the time and something happened that night that seemed like a bad thing at first and in retrospect it was a blessing uh, i started to i i did in my original relapse or my, my original relapse in my original overdose uh the reason i had overdosed is because i was using a drug that was laced with another drug and i, I kind of implied that earlier but i didn't come out and say it Turned out this drug was laced again, and I'm pretty sure it was laced with the same drug, and I didn't overdose this time, but it was a very scary experience for me. Uh, and the girl that I was dating, or, or trying to date at the time, when I, I told her I'd relapsed, and in my mind I had just relapsed, um, even though I had been in relapse for the previous five and a half years, you know, she told me she wouldn't date me if I uh, couldn't stay clean, and that she didn't think I could stay clean, and so I wanted to prove that I could get clean and stay clean. I said, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to this guy at work that goes to these classes or whatever it was. And I literally asked him to to take me to those drug classes or something of, of that effect that he goes to. And, uh, so, and so he took me to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And I remember sitting in there and, and hearing the readings and, man, it was not what I wanted to hear. I heard them read alcohol as a drug. I heard them... Uh, say that we're people with a disease of addiction and that we must abstain from all mind-changing, mood-altering drugs in order to recover. Uh, I knew what they were talking about. I knew they were talking about alcohol and all my other over-the-counter drugs and other people's prescriptions. And I remember sitting in the meeting and thinking, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my own definition of clean time like I always have. And I'm going to come into this meeting once a week and it's going to be my support group. And I'm going to come in here and, in my mind, share the mess. <laughs> you know, it, it, well, in my mind, it was it was just spilling my stuff and using a support group. It, it was sharing my mess. And uh, it was a closed meeting. And I remember at the end of the meeting, I, I wanted to share, and I remember crying like a baby. I was so miserable, and I shared, and I introduced myself as an addict, but I didn't believe it. In my mind, you all were a bunch of sick addicts, and I was just a guy with a drug problem who needed to learn how to control my using uh, so that I didn't do street drugs, and I was going to call myself clean that way. But what had been said to me that night um, stirred within me. It planted a seed. It um, and it, this was February fourth, nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, it, it was something I couldn't ignore, and I didn't come into the meeting and see these happy people and go, "Oh, they gotta be loaded." Yeah, I know what loaded looks like. These people weren't loaded. These people were genuinely happy. They were laughing about the hardest times in their lives, and I was so impressed 
uh, with the fact that these people with years could tell me exactly how many days they had uh, and that they actually counted those days a lot of them and I thought that was really cool and I, I won't lie it played on my ego a little bit and when they said are there any medallions to be presented tonight everybody in that room who had a year or more the medallions came out and they started rubbing them and playing them and they'd hold them in their hands the whole meeting and man I wanted to be one of those people but more than anything they had something that I wanted they had something that I had never had they had real recovery and I didn't want real recovery I just wanted to be happy and I thought that I could be happy if I could learn how to control my using but they had something I wanted and I went to work that night because I worked a graveyard shift I didn't even go home and it played on my mind over and over again am I gonna try it their way or am I gonna do it my way cuz I wanted what they had I really wanted it but I at the same time didn't want it it scared me to death to be clean to never have access never I won't say have access but to never use my over-the-counter drugs again to never use other people's prescriptions I thought I could stay off of street drugs as long as I could use these other drugs to help me cope and uh, I didn't want to believe alcohol is a drug or anything else that uh, t that wasn't a street drug at the time I really didn't want to believe that but I knew that they were telling me the truth and I and I was I wanted to be a part of it and I didn't. I remember them telling me welcome home, calling me family, and my reaction is, you know, fuck you, I'm not your family, and I apologize for the language, but that's what's going through my mind. I'm not your family, I'm not like you people, this is not my home, are you crazy? That's what's going through my mind, but at the same time, I somehow wanted to be a part of, I did not even know Narcotics Anonymous uh, how how it worked I'm sitting there thinking wow all these people with years and they haven't worked all 12 steps they haven't graduated yet how long does it take these things I'm going to show them how quick you can work these and graduate this program I remember I think uh, you know two or three weeks in asking my sponsor when you graduate <laughs> and I didn't want to hear when he laughed and told me you never graduate you know I really thought that man all these people you know must be here because they haven't graduated yet either that or maybe some of them were there you know helping out or something I don't know because there were some people with quite a few years there but I went to work that night and, and it weighed heavy on my mind all night and I went home the next day and I had only one drug in my house and uh, this is February 5th now I, I had only and it it was a drug of the liquid variety. It was in my refrigerator. It probably wasn't enough to even come close to getting me loaded. But I had one bottle of one drug in my house at the time. And and I, I somehow made a decision that I wanted to try it their way. And I think I had made a decision the night before. And I went to the refrigerator and I took this drug out. And I unscrewed the cap. And I stood over my kitchen sink and it occurred to me that all these people in the meeting could tell me how many days clean they had and it occurred to me that I didn't know the last time I used I knew that it had been over the weekend but it was too foggy I don't know if I was too lazy to figure it out if it was just too much of a fog but I knew I had been partying over the weekend I wasn't sure if it was you know Friday night into Saturday night I was I was 
little more sure it might have been you know Saturday into Sunday I don't know I couldn't tell you really could have been Sunday into Monday morning you know uh, I think I knew that it wasn't Monday night into Tuesday night uh, I knew that I had been clean all day Tuesday which was when I went to to my first meeting um, but I didn't know my clean date and so I'm sitting over the sink holding this drug in my hand getting ready to pour it out and this voice inside my head it, it and I didn't hear an audible voice but this conversation starts happening inside my head literally as if I'm having a discussion with my disease literally as if I'm having a discussion with my disease and my higher power these were thoughts that they're in my head but they came from outside my head it, it felt like or or something that wasn't me uh, and and I'm going to get into that and the first thought that came to me was and you know what I'm just going to tell you what the drug was because this is the thought that came to my head you know if you drink that beer you'll know your clean date and that sounded like a pretty good idea to me yeah I can know my clean date I can start from here and this other voice inside my head that I like to think was my higher power but it definitely I don't think was me if it was me it was something inside of me good and pure that would could still be referred to as a higher power I would say and uh, it said to me you know if you drink that beer it won't be your last one and I forced myself to turn it over I don't mean turn over my woman I mean literally turn over the bottle and I'm watching this liquid run down the drain and I literally said out loud shit it's not gonna be my last one anyway and I knew I couldn't stay clean. I knew there was no way I could stay clean for the rest of my life. I knew there was no way I was going to get a year. I thought maybe I could put together a few weeks. I knew I could put together some days. I knew I could do that. Part of my disease was that I would always do a day or two out of the week and not use anything because addicts can't go a day without using you know my disease was insidious it fooled me it talked to me it tricked me it lied to me all the time and I knew I couldn't stay clean and I was driving down the road I think it was later that same day I was on my way to my parents house who didn't live too far away at the time and I'm flipping that little white chip over in my hand that says NA and welcome on the front and on the back it says just for today and that hit me and it woke me up and it lifted the burden and for the first time in my life I realized what that meant I had no clue about how the other fellowship worked but I had had a grandfather whom I wasn't too close with die with 10 years in, in another program and I'd heard one day at a time all my life and I thought it was just a cliche and uh, thank God it was phrased a little bit differently because I saw that just for the day on the back of the chip and it sunk in and I realized I'm not trying to get years. I'm not trying to get months. I'm not even trying to get weeks and days. I'm just staying clean today. And it literally meant to me that I will go to bed clean tonight. And I knew I could do that. I'd already planned to stay clean at least a few days. Because I'm thinking, you know, well, I can stay clean maybe a few weeks. Maybe I'll be lucky enough to get one of those chips. Maybe I'll be lucky enough to get a couple of those chips. But eventually I'm going to come back and tell them I relapsed. And it hit me then that those people 
who were counting their days were counting their days because it was literally just for today. Because it wasn't about staying clean the rest of my life, which scared the hell out of me. It wasn't about staying clean any more than today. And I was literally going to wake up tomorrow and decide if I still wanted to be clean. If I still wanted to be a member of Narcotics Anonymous. I knew nobody was going to come to my door and drag me back into the meetings. And I thought, I don't even think these people are going to be mad. In my mind, I thought, you know, there might be some people who are a little bit disappointed. But nobody's going to be mad at me. Nobody's going to come haul me back in. And it made it possible for me to practice this program because it wasn't that I didn't want what the program had. And there were some definitely some things in there that scared me. There were definitely some things in the program that I thought it was maybe a little more religious than it really was. Or that I was going to have to accept the particular brand of religion that I had grown up on. Uh, which of course wasn't the case. But I did want what this program had to offer. I just could not stay clean and to this very day I cannot stay clean on my own I have no clue how to do it by myself the only way I know that Chubbs the Addict stays clean is to work the 12 steps and practice the 12 traditions of Narcotics Anonymous that's the only way I stay clean for any length of time because left to my own devices I will use again when people tell me just don't use no matter what. Hey, that's great if it works for you. And I'm sure there's a reason we have that saying because it probably works for a lot of people. And I know there's probably been a time or two that just for today, I just didn't use no matter what. But if I knew how to just not use no matter what, I wouldn't be here. Matter of fact, if I wasn't happy, I wouldn't be here. I know it's been said before and I know really nothing that comes out of my mouth is original. But, you know, I didn't get clean to be miserable if I was not far happier being clean, I would have no reason to stay clean if my life wasn't better. And everything that is of value in my life is a direct result, a direct result, not an indirect result, a direct result of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Narcotics Anonymous. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Eventually I switched sponsors uh, and it uh, didn't have anything to do with anything spiritual uh, it was just normal addict thinking, but I think I ended up with the, the sponsors that I was supposed to have at the time I was supposed to have them because I learned a lot of things from some, some great men. And I eventually went back to my original sponsor. My first sponsor and my fourth sponsor were the same guy, and he has since passed on. But I remember working these steps early on, and that first step, I didn't even know if I was an addict. I remember asking my mother, do you think I'm a drug addict? You know, now I'm just an addict. I mean, I'm definitely a drug addict, but I'm an addict. You know, I'm I'm not a drug addict. I'm an addict because my disease is present in all areas of my life, and I can become addicted to anything. And I need to practice that 12th step and apply these principles in all areas of my life, not just to drugs. And, uh, you know, I probably at first was trying to be powerless over drugs, and that didn't make sense to me. How can I be powerless over a drug and it did take me a minute, but I remember part of my first step was realizing that I'm not powerless over drugs. I am powerless over my addiction. I'm powerless over what causes me to use those drugs. But I remember asking my mother, do you think I'm a drug addict? And she said, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, 
I said, if I told you alcohol is a drug, would you think I was a drug addict? And she said, yeah, no question. No question at all. Because I'd had some discussions with my mother previous, and she tried to tell me that I had a problem. And she didn't know the extent of my drug use, uh, I don't think, but outside of that particular drug. But she knew that I had a problem with that particular drug, so I, I needed an outsider's take. I guess to admit that to myself, I, I guess what I was afraid of, I know what I was afraid of, was that I wanted what these people had so bad that I was going to try to be an addict if I wasn't, you know, and I remember reading some, uh, some NA literature and, and it said something to the effect of people who aren't addicts don't generally sit around and wonder if they're addicts, <laughs> and it hit me, yeah, normal people don't want to be an addict, who, who, who would want to fit in NA? I know I did, but I was like, man. That's pretty cool. It, it hit me that I must be an addict. You know, I had to find out I was an addict before I could even find out uh, if I was powerless over my addiction. And then once I believed I was powerless over my addiction, I had to go, is my life really unmanageable? Because I would look at the ways in which I, I was managing it, in which I thought I was managing it. I'd be like, well, I'm not homeless. Well, yeah, y'all, you're crashing on your mother's couch. Where's your home? <laughs> you know, I uh, I could not see that. At first, I thought that my life had become unmanageable indirectly as a result of my addiction. Uh, now, today, and, and as I continued to work that first step, I, I am able to see that my life was unmanageable as a direct result of my addiction. And when I don't work the 12 steps, my life gets unmanageable very, very quickly. Then I moved on to step two, and again, I, uh, yeah, I, I feel fortunate that I take things very literally, but at the same time, it hindered me a little bit because it came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That really messed with my head. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and I went, well, am I literally insane? And I started head running on that. Well, don't insane people. They don't know that they're insane. That's the definition of insanity. An insane person doesn't know they're not all there. And I'm going all kinds of places in my head. And I finally asked my sponsor, you know, and, uh, yeah, because I, I guess I did those type of things last instead of first being a good addict that I am. You know, do it yourself. Uh, you know, my do it yourself program before I seek my sponsor's help and advice, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I remember him telling me things like uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And I, to me, I went, you know, is that just a cliche? But I finally came to some sort of uh, conclusion that I did believe that it was possible that there was a power bigger than me in this universe that could restore me to some sort of reasonable thinking. And I knew that my thinking was not, I guess, totally sane. But I, you know, the whole insanity thing, I knew that my thinking was off. I knew that I was not of a sound state of mind. And uh, later on in my recovery, I think with about three years clean, I got a hold of a dictionary. I learned a little bit of history. And I, I remembered, I knew that the steps in a different fellowship were written in the 30s. And it occurred to me, did sanity have the same definition back then? And I knew that modern psychology was probably pretty young back in the 30s and the, the the definitions and the way people talk back then was different in some regards than than the definitions of words today 
and I happened to, I, I think my higher power put it in my life, to be honest with you. I came across a dictionary from 1930, and I looked up the word insanity, and I think it said something like the opposite of sanity, see sanity. And I looked up sanity, and it simply said, being of sound mind. And I went, holy cow, I knew I was not of sound mind. That, that might might have been the exact words in my head, was, well, I know I'm at least not of sound mind the first time I worked that second step. And it made it so much easier for me to understand that all I had to do was believe that there could be something greater than me out there, no matter what it was that could restore me to a sound state of mind. And then, of course, I moved on to the third step, and and, and I interpreted the second step differently. I didn't. It wasn't came to believe that a, a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, or the exact quote of the step. I'm talking about how it relates to me. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. To me, it was we came to believe that God would restore us to sanity, or or, or God did restore us to sanity, or something to that effect. And so when I came to the third step again, I didn't. I didn't read we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. I read we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God. And I did read as we understood him, but in that mind was the God that you already understand, the God that you grew up with. And I talked to my sponsor again. And again, probably after going this over this in my mind over and over again and trying to figure it out and... uh I said he, he couldn't understand why I didn't want to make that decision because I think he'd asked me, "Do you believe in 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 a higher power in God?" And uh, my belief then was very different than it is now. But for me back then, the very the, the answer was very simple. It was yes, and uh, and he said to me, "You know why why don't you want to turn your will and your life over to God?" And I said, "Because I don't trust Him." And he laughed and he said, "You need to fire your old God." And literally, uh, my reaction was, this dude's already mad at me. Now you want me to really piss him off? And he said, no, you don't understand. you got a faulty conception of God. you got this God who's sitting up there in the sky putting a little uh, you know, black mark in a book every time you commit a sin and can't wait to burn your ass when you die. And uh, he said, you need to come to a conception of a God who's all loving a God who uh, is all forgiving, and I'm not going to get too into my higher power concept uh, because all that matters is that I I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God, and you know my my literal prayer at that time was, please don't fuck me over. I'm going to trust you. Please don't, <laughs> you know. I I really I. I did not trust God. And, and my definition of a higher power today, the only thing I will say about it is that my higher power doesn't forgive me because my higher power doesn't judge me in the first place. Judging me is something that I do, and, and that's just the way I do it. That's not the way, uh, you know, we all get to do it our own way. You know, because I say that's the way I do it doesn't mean that's the way that anybody else in NA has to believe. But that's the way it works for me. You know, one of the things my first sponsor told me earlier in my recovery was that I had to have three priorities. And uh, this isn't NA literature, and I've heard similar things and not exactly put the same way that other people have said. But he told me I needed to, first, my relationship with my higher power needed to come first. Second, my relationship with myself. 
and third, my pro- my relationship with my program of recovery, and if those first two were actually part of that third one, and my first reaction was, well, that's pretty messed up, you know, he says, why, I said, you know, what about my son, you know, I was a single parent at the time, and what about my son, you know, shouldn't I be putting him first, and he said, the reason you need to put those things first is because anything you put before them, you will lose, and I'm going to tell you right now, it took me years to work my fourth step, and there's a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into. Uh, you know, part of it, I, right off, I actually worked a, a fourth step very quickly, and my my sponsor and I went over it, and I thought it was one of the longest four steps ever written, and it was probably one of the shortest. And it was a bunch of mess and journaling, and and but there was a lot of confession. I think I spilled all my secrets, and my sponsor read it, and he said, this is a pretty good fourth step. This is your fourth step though now go back and do your higher powers and that took me a while and this is why i ran through several different sponsors and it didn't really have much to do with my fourth step i had more to do with my sexual behavior and my sponsor telling me i needed to modify that and not being willing and ready to do that yet Uh, and more specifically uh i guess my uh relationship behavior Uh, but at any rate uh it took me years to work the fourth step and I'd get into it, and at one point, uh, uh, one of the the females that I was with at the time, uh, or the female that I was with at the time, pulled out my four step and read it because, of course, I jumped into a very sick relationship. When I asked my first sponsor why he didn't want me dating, he said, "Man, I can put you in a room with three hundred women, and uh, and they can all be interested in you, and you're going to pick the the one that will be the worst for you because you're sick." And I didn't believe him. And I I got involved with somebody who wasn't good for me, and, and I wasn't good for her. Let me just be honest about that, because uh, flies are attracted to a pile of shit, and I was definitely a pile of shit at that time in my life. And I did all the wrong things, and I put a lot of stuff before my recovery, and I lost it all, just as if I had put drugs into my body. And at times, I am sure I was in relapse without putting that drug in my body. But it took me quite a while to work that four-step. And at some point, I was able to surrender and work that four-step. And at first, all it could be was a courageous four-step because I was scared. Even though I'd let out a lot of those secrets, I was scared. And working it again, uh, you know, I was scared. And I think more secrets came out that I did not realize that I even had or was hiding. But I remember seeing one guy one time share about his fifth step. And again, I'm thinking about that fifth step. I couldn't at this point do the four step as if there was no fifth step and i remember hearing a guy sharing a meeting who said he went to this monastery uh up the canyon and there were monks up there that had taken a vow of silence and he pulled one of them guys aside and spilled his whole four step on a dude and he said you should have seen the look on the guy's face and i guess for him it worked that way and i really thought that sounded like a pretty good idea but i knew that it wasn't gonna work for me and i'm not saying that if you did it that way that that's wrong i'm saying for me I needed feedback from somebody in Narcotics Anonymous who had worked that step before me. Not only that, for me personally, I had to get honest with myself and another person. And for me personally to go read it to somebody that had a vow of silence that didn't know me from Adam that I was never going to see again, to me it would have been just as good as reading it into the thin air. And to me, in my mind, I guess it wouldn't have been getting honest with another person. It wouldn't have been admitting it to another person. To me... I needed to admit the exact nature of my wrongs and look somebody in the eye that I knew I was going to have to see 
on nearly a daily basis and trust them with that information. I was going to have to trust another addict. A recovering addict, but I was going to have to trust another addict. I didn't like to trust other people, let alone I'm going to trust another addict. And I had to be with my sponsor. And by the time I had finished working my fourth step, I was back with my first sponsor. And the first time I'd worked my fifth step with him, we read my fourth step aloud. We we we, we don't have the same spiritual beliefs, but we said a little prayer and we invited uh, my higher power in. Which in his mind, I'm sure, was also his higher power. I think he doesn't believe it matters who you think you're praying to. You know, in his mind, we share we shared a higher power anyway, and we invited our higher power in and uh, both times. But the second time I had this grand idea, my sponsor knew me so well. Because as I'm writing this stuff, I know I can't write the justification. But let me back up a little bit. At some point, I became fearless, and that's when the fourth step became easy. At some point, it wasn't about courage. It was about really writing that stuff without fear, and it just flowed. And it wasn't, I guess part of it that helped it flow was I realized that these weren't, these weren't my secrets, but I'm, I'm kind of just, uh, giving examples here. It's not on, you know, January, whatever of such and such a year, I robbed a 7-Eleven and then I robbed this other convenience store on such and such a day. It was more about, I robbed 32 convenience stores over X amount of time and here's the reasons I behaved that way. I think I quit trying to go into so much detail and speak in a little more generality. But I'm not one of these guys that says just write down the 10 worst things you ever did. I wrote down everything I could think of. I got out every secret. But I had this idea in my mind that I was going to explain to my sponsor during that fifth step, you know, justify my actions. And when I did my fifth step with him the next time, which was years later... He just took my fourth step and he said, we're going to do it different this time because the man knew me. He knew I was going to justify. And he said, when I want to know something, I will ask you. And he read in silence. And once in a while, he would laugh. And it wasn't a bad laugh. It was usually because he'd done it too. Uh, it was always because he'd done it too. And once in a while, he'd ask a question. And of course, every time he shared with me the things that he had done, that made the things that that I had done seem not quite so bad. They were bad things, but it made me feel not so alone, not so inhuman. And we went on to step six. And step six didn't come really hard for me. It didn't take long for me to become willing to want my character defects removed. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. It was a little bit scary at first. There were some things I wanted to hold on to, I think. But at this point, I had come to trust the process and trust my higher power enough to know that the things that I needed to get rid of, uh, it was okay to let them go and that I was going to be okay. I could trust that even though it was a little bit scary it was okay, and I did come to a point when I wanted to be rid of those things, and it didn't take too long. What was a little tougher for me was step seven. And uh, it doesn't matter which version of our basic text you read. Uh, it talks about, it doesn't come right out and, and take one side or the other. It talks about shortcomings and character defects. It, it's kind of amazing in such a way that... Uh, if it works one way for you and that uh, character defects and shortcomings mean the same thing, 
uh, it can work like that. It also kind of implies that for some of us, shortcomings and character defects may be two different things. And early in my recovery, the first time I was with uh, this gentleman as a sponsor, he had asked me, what's the difference between a character defect and a shortcoming? I couldn't answer that question. I don't think I knew the definition of either one. And they both sounded the same to me. And, and by the time I got to step seven, they both were the same to me. And again, this is just how it works for me. It's not how it has to work for you. But this is how it worked for me. I uh, was willing to have my higher power remove my defects of character. And I asked my higher power to remove my defects of character and it felt good. But it didn't feel completely right. And I realized that step seven said we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. So I said, no problem, I'll just phrase it a different way. And I went to ask my higher power to remove my shortcomings and I could not do it. I could not say the word even in my mind. I could not say it and mean it. And I didn't know why. And I talked to my sponsor and he told me to talk about it at meetings and I talked about it at meetings and I don't even know how it sunk in. I don't think it was anything I heard at a meeting. It was just probably prayer and meditation and listening to other addicts and, and searching for the answer. But at some point I'm looking at these steps and I'm looking at steps eight and nine. We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And step nine said we made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. And it occurred to me what a shortcoming was. It was where I had fell short. And to me it wasn't the same as a character defect. To me a shortcoming was literally where I have fallen short with you. And I guess a character defect can be a shortcoming in my character. And to be honest, that's probably what the people who wrote those steps meant. They probably meant those to be interchangeable. But for me, it didn't work that way. For me, it was a little bigger than that. And for me, it seems to fit really well with steps 8 and 9. Because, you know, it's like if I'm running a 100-yard dash and I fall short at 90 yards, that's the shortcoming. I fell 10 yards short. It might be the sole on the bottom of my shoe that was coming off that was the defect the defect of that soul, this defect in my soul that caused me to fall short. So to me, the character defects caused my shortcomings. So I went, wow, if my shortcomings is where I fell short, then I need to make up for that. Oh my goodness. Step eight and steps eight and nine are about making amends. I'm literally gonna ask my higher power to remove my shortcomings, to walk through this process with me, to help me make amends. And that's what I did in steps eight and nine. My step nine is not complete. My The people that I have hurt are so numerous, I don't know that it ever will be. I don't know that if I can ever fully make direct amends to those that I'm even able to make amends to. I know that I have to carry around some guilt because it would be really selfish of me to make amends to some people that it was only it would only hurt them worse. And I really want to make those amends, but I know that I can't be that selfish to alleviate my own personal guilt, to alleviate what I'm carrying around, to put that on them. And so I get to make indirect amends. And that ninth step, the, the same way the seventh step dovetailed with the eight and the ninth step, 
you know, that nine step dovetails with the tenth step for me where I continue to take personal inventory and when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. And for me, the tenth step means making amends where I owe it. And hopefully I'm promptly admitting that I'm wrong enough that amends aren't owed, but occasionally they will be. And especially because I don't always work the steps perfectly, you know. Uh, in, in step 11, of course, I get to continue to work on my relationship with the God of my understanding, with my higher power. You know, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And again, the way it works for me, it doesn't mean that I never pray for anything else, and I'm sure that for some people that's the way it works. It means that when I'm working that 11th step, that I simply, I literally say, please give me knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry it out. Uh, to whatever it is I believe I am praying to or sometimes I don't even know what I'm praying to and I don't have to know anymore all I know is that I am seeking the guidance of a higher power whether it be that loving pure part of me that is beneath nothing and wants only what's best for me or some divine source to the universe or some interconnectedness all I know at times is that it's there and that I don't need to know what it is other than I'm not it and if it does reside within me, it's definitely not that conscious part of my mind. It is the uh, uh, the identity of Chubbs the Addict, uh, or you know whatever I call myself, or you know it's not my that it's not my ego. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, so for me, I don't need to know what it is, but I literally just say. I, give me knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry that and I don't put any caveats on that and for me that's what I believe it meant not that I don't ask for my family's safety or pray for other people uh, you know things of that nature or, or even pray for happiness Yeah, and I guess, I guess part of that is trusting that you know give me knowledge of your will for me uh, is trusting that my higher power is going to want my happiness because uh, so far in this program that's what it's been, you know. And then step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of those steps, we tried to carry this message to other addicts and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I remember when I first started doing that and applying the, these principles to all my affairs, and I remember this time in my recovery that I literally had no addiction to anything. Not that I wasn't an addict anymore, but complete freedom from active addiction. Uh, and I can behave addictively today and do on a daily basis. Uh, but I remember this time in my recovery, uh, actively working that 12th step. And not that I don't today, because I still do. It was just, uh, you know, hitting that, that stride where everything came together at the right time, I guess and uh, experiencing this complete serenity and maybe for the first time in my life knowing the difference between serenity and euphoria I had long since lost that obsession to use but for a while I don't think I knew what serenity was and, and I, I've been gifted with being able to have that and recognize that today and the only time I don't have serenity I think is when my addict mind is actively fighting against it and uh, I'm going to just put a little more on this. I'm not uh, I'm not a guy who goes through 1 through 12 over and over again. And that's how it works for me. 
Sometimes I go back to step one and work on that a little more. I go back to step two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, but to me, the application of steps 10, 11, 12 in a day, on a daily basis encompass all of those steps. Uh, sometimes I do go in and I take more moral inventory in different ways and write it down and not just an ongoing daily inventory but to me that is still continue to take personal inventory to me that's not just what I did today that's digging deeper into my step four to me all those steps are encompassed in 10 11 12 and it is not to say that if you're one of those people that goes through and works one through 12 over and over again that that's the wrong way to do it because I know it's not I know the only wrong way to work the steps is not to work the steps I know it doesn't matter if you do them a little bit differently than I do. I know my sponsor today does them a lot differently than I do. I know that my program might get him loaded and, and his and his might get me loaded just because the way we approach the steps. But we both work the same 12 steps. We use different, maybe a different roadmap, I guess I could say, and, and it... Uh, we get from point A to point B differently, or maybe I'm coming from point C and he's coming from point A, but we're both going to point B, and we both work those same steps. And so I don't get to judge you if you work them different than me, and I hope you don't judge me that I may work them different than you. But that's the way it works in my life today. And I'm just going to go through the steps on this program because uh, I, I want to just share with you my personal recovery today. I just want to share with you how it works in my life. Again, everything that I have in my life that is of any value, and I'm not talking monetary value because I don't have much right now, and a lot of that's by choice, but even the stuff that I have that does have some monetary value, anything of value in my life today is a direct result of the program, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the addicts who comprise Narcotics Anonymous. You know, the addicts, the groups, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, that is Narcotics Anonymous in my mind. Anything I have of value in my life today is a direct result of the program of Narcotics Anonymous. Maybe I'll just, you know, update things, uh, encapsulate uh, a bit of the last 17 years in a nutshell here. You know, I came into this program... Uh, in the middle of a divorce. I came into this program having lost everything but custody of my son. Uh, uh, nearly everything of uh, monetary or earthly value I had lost. Uh, that which I hadn't lost, I lost uh, soon thereafter. And not uh, because this program doesn't work, but because I wasn't through being an addict. And I, I built up some things again and I lost them again like I referred to earlier. I got involved in a relationship very early in recovery with another newcomer, and uh, I lost uh, that relationship, and that was a blessing. Neither one of us should have been in that relationship. You know, my uh, previous two marriages totaled, I believe, uh, including separation time, uh, probably eight years or something to that effect, and that includes the time that it took to get divorced. You know, today I've been, a mar I've been married to the same woman for over 11 years. Uh, as I make this recording, I have been clean 6,392 just for today's. And I don't know my real clean date as far as the last time I used. I use my first meeting because I don't 
to this day know the last time I used. If I was to make my best guess, I'd say maybe February 2nd. But I used February 4th, 1997. And, uh, you know, today with 17 years clean, I've been married to the same woman longer than my previous two marriages combined. Uh, that's a direct result of this program. I have two children, one of whom uh, has never seen their daddy loaded. The other one has not seen daddy loaded since he was about one, one and a half years old. Um, that's a blessing in my life. That's a direct result of this program. Now, I want to go back up just a little bit and, and talk about, I guess, relationships because my sponsor, my first sponsor, who was also my fourth sponsor, who sponsored me for a large portion of of my recovery? Uh, yeah, he used to tell me, you know, you're not going to find a woman you are meant to be with until you've got something to offer. You know, he'd tell me there's a woman out there for you, but she's not going to want you until you, uh, you know, put together something for her. And he didn't just mean working the steps; he meant working on me to quit medicating myself with relationships, to quit needing to validate myself through women and relationships and things like that uh, and I remember it was about oh I want to say you know close to five years clean <laughs> I finally went to him and I broke down and I'm crying and I said I'm ready to try it your way and do some abstinence and some things that scared me uh, yeah, he wouldn't tell me it was going to be a year because I remember the first time he told me I needed to practice some abstinence very early in my recovery. And I said, okay, how long? A year? Nah, that's treatment center stuff. That's nowhere in our book. At first he told me, no, nah, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. If it's a problem for you, uh, you know, dating and uh, doing whatever you're going to do with your sex life, we'll address it. He said, I worked, in the, you know, I worked in the Narcotics Anonymous program, not what treatment centers tell us. And then when he did tell me I have a problem, I said, you know, cool, what, a year? He said, no, nah, I don't know. Could be two months, could be two years, could be five years. He wouldn't give me a time frame. And so finally, you know, right around, uh, you know, it might have been just before five years, but I finally became willing to practice some abstinence from relationships, from sexual encounters, to actually learn how to date <laughs> I remember the place I was working, uh, it was a, a treatment facility of sorts, and they wanted me to teach the residents a, a dating unit, and I looked at the guy who was in charge, and I said, I can't do that. And he said, why? I said, I don't know how to date. He said, haven't you been married twice? I said, yeah, I've also been divorced twice. My idea of dating is uh, you want to go to my place, and that was literally my dating life at the time. And, uh, you know, so this man taught me how to date. He taught me first how to not date, and then he taught me how to date with no expectation of sex or relationships. He taught me how to love me. He taught me how to date in order to find out if there was compatibility instead of to fix myself. You know, and then when the time was right, I, I met my wife. And uh, I'm not going to lie, things progress very quickly if you've done the math, you know. I think I met my wife in 2002. In two, I know I met my wife in 2002. In uh, early 2003, we were married. Actually, on my clean date, on my six-year clean date, February 4th, 2003. Um, 
but I learned how to date through this gentleman, and, and not through this gentleman, through the 12 steps of Narcotics Anonymous, through the 12 traditions of Narcotics Anonymous, you know, through trusting this process. You know, before I wrap things up, I, I want to relate another experience that I had uh, at some point in my recovery. And I, I believe this would have been, again, about the four, five-year clean mark, probably four and a half. But at some point during my recovery, I, I started to struggle and really question the existence of my higher power. Um, I mentioned that I worked with my first sponsor before. We were at a retreat, a work retreat out of town, staying overnight. And I, I got loaded, of course, during this, this retreat. And we're, uh, you know, we're in a meeting and we're listening to whoever it was give a lecture that had to do with the field that we were working in. And, and, uh, I was completely loaded. And this guy who was not my sponsor at the time, who was just a member of Narcotics Anonymous, passed me this note that said, you know, you look like somebody who uh, just did something, you know, looking around the room to, you know, uh, see who's on to you or, or like somebody owes you money or something. But he knew that I was loaded and he passed me a funny little note during this uh, this lecture. And I wrote across the bottom, uh, I, I scrawled across the bottom, I'm effed up. And I passed the note back to him. And I didn't remember any of this at the time. Uh, I remember I remember it now uh, because of what happened, but I, I, looking back on I thought it was very funny at the time, and I passed him this note back, and this is probably about a year and a half, two years before I ever came into recovery, before I asked this man to take me to my first meeting. I remember that night going to a work party, and a lot of us were loaded, and I remember watching these guys uh, playing poker at the table, who kind of separated themselves from everybody else, and, and it was because they were all either uh, addicts or alcoholics or whatever, called themselves, you know, by one of those labels, and uh, none of them partied the way we did. And I remember, you know, feeling sorry for them, even though I was so, so trashed that I could not even move, sat in the corner for hours because I was completely unable to even interact with anybody, but I remember feeling sorry for these guys. Uh, but back to the point, you know, um, you know, probably I'd guess about two years, maybe even longer, but a, a couple years before I ever came into this program, he passes me this note and I scrawl, I'm fucked up across the bottom of it and I pass it back and chicken scratch and you can barely read it and I'd forgotten it had even happened. And I'm at my sponsor's house one night now, I want to kind of paint the picture for probably two years, I don't come into the program at all, at least a year and a half after this, maybe as long as three years, but I don't come into the program at all. This guy doesn't know I'm ever going to get clean, doesn't know I'm ever going to be a member of Narcotics Anonymous. In fact, it was uh, two years. I had four years clean. I'm remembering the numbers now. He did not know I was going to be a member of Narcotics Anonymous. Damn sure didn't know he was going to sponsor me. Uh, you know, probably a couple months in, I fired this guy because he's not letting me date and do the sexual things I want to do and that and I don't feel like he's being mean enough to me and calling me on enough of my shit and uh so I move on and and I I'm with some other sponsors for a number of years and eventually come back to this guy with about three and a half years clean and uh I'm sitting in his house with just over four years clean I believe and uh I'm questioning my higher power for whatever reason I hadn't been working my steps well and I'm 
I have relapsed on my third step. I haven't put a drug in my body, but I'm, I'm probably in some phase of relapse at this point, and I'm really questioning the existence of a higher power and whether God looks out for me. And he went to his desk and he said, you know, you passed me, or he said, I passed you this something years ago, and uh, you passed it back to me, and I felt like I needed to hold on to it, and I didn't know why. And I, he went to his desk and he got out this note, and I hadn't even remembered it happening until he handed me this note. And then it all came back to me, I had forgotten the memory of it even happening. And a lot of people, you know, when I tell this story, I, I, they, oh, well, what was in the note? You know, I've already told you what's in the note. Uh, so I need to be clear. It wasn't the fact that what I had written or what he had written. It was irrelevant. The fact was he had passed me this note that had to do with me being trashed in the meeting. And I had scrawled my little what I thought was funny across the bottom and passed it back to him. The point was that he felt compelled like there was a higher power guiding him, some voice whispering to him that he needed to save that paper and he didn't know why. And he held it for two years before I ever got clean. And then I asked him to take my first, take me to my first NA meeting and he didn't tell me he had it. And I asked him to sponsor me and he didn't tell me he had it. And he asked, and, and I fired him and he didn't tell me he had it. And I came back you know, three years later and, and asked him to sponsor me again and he didn't tell me he had it. And then the night that I'm questioning the existence of a higher power, he tells me, I feel like I'm supposed to give this to you now. And to me, it was a testament that there was something out there really guiding me. I think I was starting to question, you know, am I really guided? That might have been the exact words out of my mouth. And he gave me this note back and to me it was proof that he held that note through all that uncertainty through all those things simply because he felt compelled to because he felt like his higher power was telling him to hold it because he felt like at some point he told me I've always known someday I was going to give this back to you I didn't know when or why tonight I know And to me it was proof that there was something out there looking out for me because I'm a very literal, very scientific-minded guy and it can be very hard for me to believe. And it was proof to me that I had the right sponsor at the right time, that this program is not simply cognitive restructuring, that there is literal spirituality magic, whatever you want to call it in those steps. And that I was where I was supposed to be at that time. And that it was okay for me to trust a higher power again. It was okay for me to trust God And I'm sure I could go on for hours at this point and, and tell stories from my recovery. But it feels like a good spot to end. Um, and I, I'm feeling like I guess what I want to do uh, is, is read something that I used to read uh, when I used to, to speak a lot. Uh, and 
something that I don't do anymore is uh, I, I haven't spoken for a while uh, at a speaker meeting. But I used to finish uh, any speaker meetings that I did the same way. Early in my recovery, I had written my own just for today. And maybe we're going to get back into uh, traditionalist stuff a little bit here. You know, one of the things that traditionalists believe is that we can still write literature. And this is not Narcotics Anonymous literature. But this is something from my recovery. And I remember listening to speaker tapes and people talking about how the grade book and the basic text were written. And, and uh, when the fellowship, you know, we as a fellowship decided it wasn't okay to read another fellowship's material. And, and you know, the next question is, well, what is Narcotics Anonymous literature? Because we didn't have a lot of it. It was anything written by a member of Narcotics Anonymous for the purposes of recovery that the home group accepts and consciences. And uh, this isn't home group approved, but this is what I wrote for my recovery. And it's something that's still very important to me today. And it's because those words just for today quite literally saved my life, quite literally gave me a life through this program. And so I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to share it with you here. And again, I just want to be clear that this is not Narcotics Anonymous literature in the sense that it has been approved by the fellowship or any any group of addicts at all, not a home group. But it is my personal recovery literature in the sense that it was written by me. So I, I hope it uh, doesn't offend you that I'm going to read it here. But uh, this is the way that I would like to to finish off here and this is uh, just for today and it's, it's my version as it applies to my own personal recovery just for today I will take time out I will stop and enjoy life's simple pleasures just for today I will live in the moment not worrying about what others think of my actions just for today I will believe in magic I will listen to my inner child just for today I will trust my instinct I will follow my heart and not my head just for today I will be unafraid, realizing that those who would judge or manipulate me are living the lie from which I am free. Just for today I will love myself. I will set my spirit free. Just for today I will realize that freedom is a state of mind and not a set of circumstances. Just for today I will be responsible for my own happiness. I will not give anyone else power over this. Just for today I will have a higher power, no matter how hard this may be. Just for today I will be a child. I will do those things I did before I came to believe in the grand lie. I will do those things I did before I came to believe I was a grown-up. I will realize that being a child means living free, not being irresponsible. I will be happy, and when necessary, I will simply be. So long as I follow this way, I am free. My name's Chubbs the Addict. Thank you for allowing me to share part of my story. You have been listening to Autonomous Unity. 